Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. and better than ever. A new web interface for the start of the basketball season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. But online remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAVE50 to receive your bonus. That's B-L-E-A-V-5-0. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sp- favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, the host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Podcast Network. Today is Monday, November 8, 2021. This is episode 45 of season three. As always, thank you so much for being with us and spending time with us on this show. We have a very special show today. This is a part of the uh, Cal State Long Beach graduate sport management course that I teach. And uh, we had a couple guest uh, speakers in the course. And uh, we had uh, Jonathan Putu, he is the business affairs. Uh, uh, manager at uh, William Morris Endeavor. And then we also had Professor Steve Semeraro, who teaches antitrust and intellectual property at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. So I hope that you enjoy the show and we'll be back with you very soon. And we have two very, very special guests uh, with us today. We have Professor Steve Semeraro, who was uh, actually my professor in law school um, and taught me. Um, uh, antitrust law. We did a really wonderful program in Nice, France together. And um, don't worry, we got a lot of work done there too, but we definitely had a lot of fun, but it was amazing. And uh, he's a great professor and, and, and an even better human being, just a really good person. But um, he's the director of the Intellectual Property Fellowship Program uh, at Thomas Jefferson School of Law down in San Diego. He's a Stanford Law School grad uh, with his Juris Doctor and uh, he went to uh, Rutgers for his undergrad. Um, he has worked for the United States Court of Appeals in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, he worked for a private firm in Washington, D.C. for a while. He also worked for the United States uh, Department of Justice and Antitrust Division, uh, which is great because tonight's topic is antitrust and private associations and labor law and that sort of thing. Um, so, again, I'll, I'll put his... Uh, his um, his bio in the chat, but so again, welcome uh, Professor Steve Simararo. Thanks for having me. My, my pleasure. And then uh, also we have, um, we have a dear friend of mine as well, Jonathan Maputu. Uh, Jonathan, did I say your last name right? Uh, I'm silent, but close enough. All right. So how do you, how do you, what's the proper way to say it then? Putu. Putu. All right. Hey, that's easier. Exactly. <laughs> 
I love it. All right. So Jonathan is with us today. He is a business affairs executive, uh, sports talent and brand partnerships at WME. Uh, he's an NBA player agent. And if you don't know what WME is, it is uh, William Morris Endeavor. Uh, next to CAA, it is probably the largest, uh, if not the largest sports agency in the world. Uh, and it does a lot more than sports agency work. I mean, it's gotten into production, it's gotten into uh, content and everything else. And um, the, the parent company owns UFC and um, a bunch of other investments. So welcome both to Jonathan and uh, Professor Cimarraro. So Professor Cimarraro, let's start with you. Maybe a little bit, um, I go, went over your background a little bit, maybe talk a little bit about your background, um, some of the antitrust. Well, again, thank you for having me. And so when I basically knew you know, nothing about what antitrust was when I went to law school, but I ended up taking the class because the professor seemed interesting and I ended up getting my worst grade in law school, but really liked the subject. And, um, and so I, um, I got a job in a law firm where um, I did a lot of antitrust work. It was actually a law firm that um, Paul Tagliabue practiced at at the time and that did a lot of work for the National Football League. And I came close to getting onto a couple of those cases from time to time, but it, it never quite worked out. So I did antitrust work for other entities, but not, uh, not for the NFL or the NBA that the firm also represented. After I was there for about five years, I moved to uh, the Department of Justice in the antitrust division. And uh, I worked there for about five years prosecuting antitrust cases. And um, a lot of the work that I did there uh, involved sort of complex uh, civil antitrust issues. So a lot of antitrust is very sort of straightforward, price fixing market division, where the issue is, did entities that are supposed to be competitors, did they get together and agree on prices? And you know, it's, it's, it's really just a black and white issue. Did they or didn't they? Can you prove it? Um, but that's not what I did. I, I did situations where there was no question that there was an agreement. And the issue was, but was that agreement improper for some reason? So the issue in the case wouldn't be the factual one of did they enter an agreement or not? It would be the legal one of is this agreement illegal? And again, I didn't do a lot of sports work, but um, that's the issue that tends to arise in sports cases. It's not an issue of people hiding agreements, although that could happen with things like collusion among owners to keep wages down. But more often than not, it's an agreement that's part of uh, a labor negotiation um, that it will give uh, will give rise to. <laughs> Um, or also very common, agreements among universities. So since I came to Thomas Jefferson, um, I've taught antitrust. That was probably more than you wanted, uh, but that takes you up to the present, uh, the present date. And I would say in my particular case, the, most, um, the thing that I've spoken most about involving antitrust in sports uh, involves the, um, the, the labor exemption, the idea that something that's included in a labor management agreement is exempt from challenge under the antitrust laws. No, thank you. That was great. Um, I felt like I was in Nice all over again. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. So Jonathan, let's talk a little bit about you, um, your background. Uh, we met at UCLA from what I can remember. Is that? Yep, that's right. We met yep. at UCLA. Um, a little bit about your background and kind of what you're doing now. And um, 
sort of how you got into that, to that, the, uh, the sort of MBA agent space. Yeah, no, not a problem. So I'm originally from uh, Central Florida. I uh, ended up going to school in upstate New York at Colgate University, uh, where I played college football. Uh, at the end of my football career, once I realized I wasn't going to the NFL, I needed a, a backup plan. You know, I wanted to stay still within sports, but wanted to find another way where I could utilize my passion with my skill set. Uh, one of my skill sets, I thought personally, was helping people. Um, I'm really engaged with the idea of breaking things down to make sense for other people. And that's kind of how I stumbled upon the idea of being an agent. Um, given my football background, I started to look into, well, what was the process to becoming an NFL agent? And the two options that I found were either going and getting your MBA or getting your JD. At that point, my college roommate at the time had gone on to law school and actually left me with all of his LSAT books. So I knew, okay, I already have this. It's the first step. I might as well start preparing for the LSAT. Um, from there, I started to look into the industry. And I realized that for sports and entertainment, the two hubs were mainly New York and L.A. Uh, at that point, I was kind of tired of the cold of New York City. So I knew California is where I wanted to go. Um, there are plenty of schools in California, Thomas Jefferson being one, Stanford, UCLA, um, Loyola, where where you can go to school and get an education specifically in sports and entertainment. So that was kind of my focus. Uh, I wanted to get into the law specifically for the idea of going into a sports and entertainment concentration. So I was less interested about going the big law route. That being said, it's very beneficial depending on what your end goals are. If you wanted to be you know, a general counsel of a sports team, having some law firm experience goes a long way even being an executive, having some firm experience goes a long way. Uh, but for myself, going the agent route, I figured if I just kind of focused on getting sports entertainment experience, that'd be the best way to kind of break in. Uh, the sports entertainment industry is a very small industry, and it's all about networking. So once you break in, it's kind of easy to navigate. And I knew that was the first step. Um, I was fortunate, you know, uh, probably the, the UCA panel I heard you speak on or another panel where I realized is going to events like this, networking with other people will open up opportunities. Uh, my first year, I was fortunate to get an internship with Athletes First, uh, an NFL agency down in Laguna Hills, and that kind of opened up the door for everything else. Uh, having that experience gave me the opportunity to get a job with, with the Clippers, which I had uh, two summers later. Uh, I was one of their first legal interns. And then that led me to the opportunity uh, with MVP Sports Group, a baseball agency. Uh, and then having all those experiences gave me a shot after law school uh, to break in with WME IMG uh, as a legal coordinator. Uh, so I started off as a legal coordinator on the IMG side. It's one of the few jobs that you can get coming out of law school. Most sports and entertainment jobs, if you don't have firm experience, you're not going to start off as an associate counselor, an executive you're still learning what you're doing. Um, so, but they'll let you come in as a coordinator, learn under a group of other attorneys and then kind of build your way from there. So uh, even though I was an attorney, I was still coordinator for about one and a half years on the IMG side. I focus on the live event space where essentially I was the sole attorney uh, covering a variety of live events. So I would do venue agreements, sponsorship agreements, vendor agreements, pretty much anything related to putting on an event um, 
it was my job and responsibility to help the business team stay coordinated and, and figure out the best practices. Uh, from there, I was able to jump to our sister company, WME, uh, under the client services role. And this is what kind of opened up the door to the MBA agent route. Under the client services role, I was essentially in charge of all of the onboarding process for all of WME clients, whether it was motion pictures, television, music, uh, endorsements, or even sports clients. I was the person helping to explain to clients, their managers, their lawyers, uh, their, their team in general, how this industry worked, uh, what our commission structures were, um, how do we get deals, how do we commission those deals, what responsibilities do they have, um, and that opened up the door to, okay, I have this experience and I understand the off-court concept of things, how these deals work and how the money comes there. Let me focus back to my original passion, which was the on-court. So from there, uh, I started looking into the NBA. Uh, the NFL, it's a, it's a beast in its own. And my background was with football, but my passion actually was basketball. So uh, also the way that the NFL works versus the NBA, the NFL, the test isn't until the summer and you don't get your results back till mid-season and you mm-hmm. aren't actually able to start recruiting until the following season because you have to have insurance, things of that sort. Versus the NBA, the test is in January. You get your results back, I believe, February, uh, which will allow you to kind of jump into the draft process um, or at least free agency. Um, and then dues are also due at the end of the season. So it just worked out better for me to kind of go the NBA path, uh, study for the exam, subsequently pass the exam. And then I've been working with WME on our, our sports side. We recently opened up WME Sports. Um, so kind of got to help out with our first draft class uh, that we just launched. Um, our top pick being Scotty Barnes with the Toronto Raptors. Um, and then we've been slowly kind of building out the space from there. Uh, we have baseball clients, uh, football clients, and then we have a joint venture with BDA. So that's really my role as, as an MBA agent is more so just helping on the deal side of things. And then that's just kind of been my practice has just been jumping from role to role, which whenever it made sense um, and taking advantage of the experiences of the past roles to put me in a position to have success in future roles. No, thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to come back to you on that question of sort of the agency process, because that's so fascinating, right? And how much it's changed and uh, and what that's going to look like in the future with name, image, and likeness and everything mm-hmm. else, right? Um, so really appreciate you sharing that. So Professor Semerar, I want to come back to you because part of why I wanted to bring you you both here together is that Jonathan is coming from sort of the talent side and um and we initially wanted to have somebody from a team to kind of have the team perspective. And obviously you coming from sort of having the antitrust experience and how leagues work. And cause in any league, you're going to basically have, you know, a player's union, you're going to have league with the team owners, and then you're going to have, um, you know, sort of the players and the talent, that sort of thing. But uh, in terms of like the history of antitrust in sports, I mean, we've had, some of these like really like seminal cases, right? Like flood versus uh, Kuhn, um, you know, Brown versus pro football, these sort of big U.S. Supreme Court cases, not to mention Alston versus NCAA. And then of course the current Stan Kroenke NFL uh, dilemma. So um, 
is it possible to sort of have maybe like a kind of like a, a brief overview of maybe some of like some of the most important cases that sort of you've come across in antitrust with regard to sports and labor and that sort of thing? Sure. So um, a little bit of history, I guess, maybe breaking things down into, into categories. So if we remember that the issue with antitrust is agreements among entities that should be competing with each other. So a lot of the early cases dealt with league rules that um, either limited competition uh, with respect to players, like the Kurt Flood case, which um, dealt with an agreement among the teams in the league. Um, you could describe it as a league rule, right? But a rule of the league is something that all of the teams in the league have agreed to follow. And so that rule was that even when a player's contract was over, they could not negotiate with other teams. They would be bound solely to their own team unless their team gave up those rights. Um, similar cases dealt with the ability of teams to move to different cities if they wanted to do so in a way that violated um, one of the rules. Um, another case involved a rule against um, multiple sport ownership. The rule prohibited uh, owners of NFL teams from also owning a team in a soccer league uh, in, in the United States. So the issue in a lot of these early cases was, should we treat these as agreements at all? And so this was something that was known as the single entity argument. And the, the idea was that a league like the National Football League or Major League Baseball um, is not, a rule that they have is not really an agreement that should give rise to antitrust concerns because a league is a single entity. The argument that was made was that, hey, you know, the teams in a the league, they compete with each other on the field, but that's not what antitrust is about. Antitrust is about economics. And the argument was that they don't compete with each other economically. They compete with each other on the field, but the NFL competes with um, other forms of entertainment to bring people in. And so one of the initial arguments in all of these cases was that, look, antitrust has no business here. Um, but that argument failed over and over again until today it's been definitively resolved that at least traditional leagues like Major League Baseball, National Basketball Association, National Football League, the individual teams really do compete with each other economically. And they do so in a number of different ways, right? Um, selling um, uh, regalia that bears the, the logo, the trademarks of the team. They compete with each other to sell more of that. Um, and of course, uh, a huge way that they compete with each other is for talent. Um, they, you know, the uh, Yankees don't compete against, um, you know, other forms of entertainment that people might do in the summer when they're competing to sign a free agent baseball player, they're competing against other teams that are also bidding on that player. So the, um, uh, it's been definitively established now that those sorts of leagues are not single entities, the teams are. 
and a, and a league rule that prohibits the teams from competing each other, with each other um, by moving to other cities or by bidding for uh, players, those rules are subject to antitrust uh, scrutiny. Now, there are some leagues that are organized a little bit differently where um, the individual teams are not separately owned entities, but there's just one entity that owns the entire league and operates all of the teams. And I'm not an expert on this, but I believe some soccer leagues in the United States are organized that way. And they may have a lot more freedom to do things that leagues with independently owned teams cannot do. So I don't know how far you want me to go, but that's um, an introduction to uh, an early sort of part of um, uh, what antitrust, uh, how it got involved with sports. Uh, there's a whole nother area dealing with uh, the NCAA. And I don't know if you want me to go on and talk about that now or maybe later. Yeah, no, that was perfect. Um, we'll pause there now. That was amazing, Steve. I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, Jonathan, going back to you, talk a little bit about um, sort of the importance of the players union, what that means in sports. And you can focus on the NBA because I know that's your, your expertise. But if you've got other uh, expertise, feel free to share that. But I feel like the process is important. Uh, the importance of the players union and what that means. Um, people will often ask, well, you know, why do some, you know, leagues get paid more, players get paid more than others? Or why is this league more powerful than other leagues? And I often like to say that, um, that ultimately it, it really comes down to the players union. It's what they negotiate with the owners and what they get for their players. So um, talk a little bit about the process of becoming an agent and sort of the importance of uh, the players union. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's everything that you just said. Uh, the players union really do hold a lot of power and the public doesn't really realize that. Uh, but almost any right or guarantee that you see a specific player of a specific league has, it comes from the players union. Um, and it starts with agents. Uh, the players unions are the ones who actually allow player agents to become player agents. They're the ones who will conduct the tests they're the ones who will take your application um, and they can go through the whole process. So uh, with more in particularly the MBA, for example, it's a process that usually begins in the summer, um, right after the free agency period around August. Uh, that's when the NBA Players Association will open up applications uh, for any individual to become a player agent. Uh, each league is slightly different with, in terms of the requirements that you need. Uh, for example, with the MLB, all you need is a high school diploma and you can be an MLB agent uh, with the NBA uh, previously known as like the rich Paul rule, if you will, it, it was previously that you need a college degree, uh, but now they make the exception that if you have at least substantial negotiation experience, if you could show that, then that also qualifies you uh, in order to become an MBA agent. But then the NFL, like I mentioned earlier, you need either an MBA or a JD to become a player agent. Uh, back to the NBA, once you have all of the qualifications, uh, it's just a simple application where you kind of showcase, okay, this is the experience I have. These are the schools I've attended. If I haven't attended a four-year college, then this is the actual substantial experience, negotiation experience I have. Um, a lot of it will come from if you worked at an agency or if you have agency experience, um, or if you can demonstrate in some other capacity that you've gained relevant negotiation skills which is actually pretty important when you consider 
what a player agent is actually doing on behalf of a player. You're having a player who expertise is predominantly their sport. That's what they know inside and out. And they're relying on another individual to kind of come in and handle the business side of things. If you don't know what you're doing, you're really putting that player at a detriment and it can be costly to the effects of millions of dollars, depending on the situation. Uh, so the NBA Players Union is very focused and dedicated on making sure that anyone who they're going to allow to have a license to be a player agent is actually qualified and can take care of the player the way that they're saying that they're able to do. Um, once you go ahead and fill out the application, then you go through a, a background check and you pay a, a, a decent fee. The NBA is uh, fifteen hundred uh, to actually uh, get qualified. And then once they approve you, then you sit down for an exam. Uh, the exam is a one-day exam. Uh, it's in New York City. Uh, tip, I'm assuming this past year was probably virtual just due to COVID and everything, but it's usually a two-day process where the day before they will have a study exam. Um, it's about four hours. You can kind of come and answer and ask any questions that you may have. Members of the NBA Players Association's legal team will be there to conduct the, the exam period and prepare you for what to expect. Then the next day, it's a 60 question, um, four hour exam. And I think, I believe you need 84% to, to pass, um, but the results come pretty quickly. It's all multiple choice. Um, and then subsequently within a month, you get your, your license to, to practice. Uh, but to your earlier question about just the importance of leagues, uh, unions in general, you know, you can look for the different rights between the different leagues and you can see the impact that a player's union has had on that individual league. Uh, for example, in the MLB, they have a very strong players union, um, as Professor, you know, stated, they're one of the very first leagues to kind of get on board with the idea of a players union and fighting for player rights. Subsequently, you know, their players have guaranteed contracts. Uh, there's no salary cap in their league. Um, and they have a lot more rights in general. Uh, in the NBA, similar, most contracts are guaranteed, um, but there are some caveats here and there depending on player performance and player responsibilities. If you do something to void your contract, then a team can kind of get out of some of that money. Uh, but even just the, the money, you know, in the NBA, for example, the split is actually, uh, I have to double check, but I wanna say 51% to the players, 49% to the owners. Um, which is huge considering the kind of money that the league is generating in general. Um, the NBA Players Union, they're the ones who negotiate all of that. Uh, it's built with, it's a legal team with them, and it's it's two-folded where it's a group of legal uh, team members where they have the president, um, uh, Miss Roberts right now, she's the president. I know she's stepping down at the end of the season. They just elected a new president. Uh, but then they also have the players themselves. They're also members of the league. And the two groups together work together on players' rights. Things such as fines, things such as violations. Um, the NFL, for example, their collective, and it's all dictated by the collective bargaining agreement, um, which is negotiated between the league owners and their legal team and the players union. Um, the NFL, for example, they just renegotiated their collective bargaining agreement because they had just expired. And, and you see things that kind of came up this season um, where they agreed to extend the season by an extra game. Uh, they eliminated a preseason game. Uh, they eliminated some of the penalties such as 
uh, marijuana is no longer a violation, uh, but they also increase things such as drug testing. All of those things are negotiated and dictated by the players union. So the stronger the union, the more rights that the players are going to have. Um, the, it adds to the longevity of a player's career, and it just overall just protects the players. No, thanks, Jonathan. That's amazing. Um, and so important because, like, even when you compare, like, uh, what contracts look like, is there rookie minimums? Is there um, uh, how long can a player, you know, be signed with a team? Uh, are contracts guaranteed? For example, in football, they're not guaranteed for the most part. I think some of that's changing, but, you know, for baseball, for example, you can be 10 years retired and still be getting paid. <laughs> paid. Uh, the contracts are guaranteed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I think that um, it's really sort of important what you shared, and, and I put some, some links in the chat as to the CBA for the NBA. And, of course, uh, the other four major leagues in Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, NHL, and MLS all have similar type um, situations. But Professor Samarar, I want to go back to you, talk a little bit about the NCAA. And then Jonathan, I'm going to come back to you talking about NIL and how does that work into some of the, you're going to work, your work going forward. So uh, Professor Samarar, what are some of the NCAA antitrust cases and um, some of the fallout from, from those things? Sorry, I was muted. Um, Similar um, issue to the leagues in that each of the universities that make up the NCAA are separate legal entities. Um, The NCAA has certain rules which are effectively an agreement among those legal entities. Now, um, unlike um, uh, the, the baseball and football professional leagues, they, they didn't really um, have a plausible argument that they were a single entity because the universities were clearly separate in a way that even more so than professional sports teams in the league. Um, so what the uh, NCAA tried to argue was that because the um, uh, athletes were amateurs and because it was integrated into an educational setting, that it should be viewed as essentially non-commercial activity that wouldn't be part of the antitrust laws, which are focused at um, competition you know, in the marketplace. And there may have some, been some plausibility to that, you know, maybe in the 1940s or something, but uh, college sports, especially in the areas where um, the issues have been generated are you know, big time um, uh, uh, money earners for universities. And it's clear that the um, universities compete with each other for fans and support that will make their teams more valuable. So um, this sort of same issue has repeated itself multiple times over the years. The first big case was in the early 1980s and it involved television. And the NCAA had certain rules about how many times each school could appear on national television during the season. And um, some of the bigger schools, and I believe it was Oklahoma and Nebraska who were at the center of this, took the position that, hey, wait a minute, 
we could make a lot more money for our school's program if we got on TV more. And our teams are good. People want to watch us. The networks will pay us to be on more times and we can make more money. The NCAA tried to stop them saying that violates our rules. And the case worked its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which held that an agreement limiting a school's ability to sell its television rights was an agreement in restraint of trade. It was prohibiting the individual universities from competing to get their games on TV. And so the, that was the end of the ability of the NCAA to limit schools from competing for television rights. Um, another case involved payment for um, assistant coaches. Uh, it's very well known. I think it's often reported how much money big time college coaches make, the head coaches. But the, the NCAA tried to adopt a rule that limited what universities could pay to assistant coaches. Same issue, same problem. That's an agreement that restricts individual universities from competing for the best assistant coaches by paying them what they want. And, um, and so the, that sort of worked its way up to the, the Austin case, which has been you know, an issue for, boy, a long, long time, at least you know, 25 years or so. Um, the NCAA has rules that prohibited two things, universities from paying their athletes money. They could give them scholarships. There's certain perks that they could give them to compete to get those athletes to come to your university, but they couldn't pay them money. And second, the NCAA prohibited the individual athletes from um, profiting from their own image as a college player. And so the, the same issue arose, right? This is an agreement among universities that prohibits them from competing for athletes by paying them. And this is an agreement among universities that prohibits the individual athletes from profiting off their own image so that only the universities and the NCAA can do that. You know, these cases are very complicated, but they all have the same basic structure. They're an agreement that's trying to stop some people from competing so that others can, you know, profit without having to engage in that competition. Uh, and, and that's sort of a description of where, you know, the, the NCAA has been. It's been a long time. There's been a lot of sort of belief that, hey, it's different because it's amateurs, it's educational setting. But the more that college sports has become big time, the more it's become clear that you know, this is just a business like anything else. And um, they really, the colleges shouldn't be treated any differently from professional sports leagues, which this is the last point I'll make. There's an interesting exemption that Congress has enacted that allows the professional sports leagues to essentially set the terms of television among, the, among their teams. Um, the um, the uh, Professional Sports Broadcasting Act allows the NFL, for example, to negotiate television deals for the entire league and prohibit teams from negotiating outside deals. That's because the antitrust laws are statutes that are made by Congress. Congress can make exemptions to those rules. And interestingly, it has for the big four professional sports leagues, 
um, but not for the NCAA. And so individual professional leagues can negotiate bulk television deals, but the NCAA cannot limit universities from doing their own. No, that's fantastic. And then one quick question to that, Professor Shimaro. So talk a little bit about, and we'll go back to Jonathan, the MLB um, exemption and why Major League Baseball sort of has it. What is it uh, that, that, that the whole sort of history of that? <laughs> so that, that is just, um, uh, you know, like folklore. Um, you know, the back in the early 20th century, uh, there was a case involving uh, restrictions on what teams could do. And the case worked its way to uh, the United States Supreme Court. And they said that, um, well, baseball games are played in a particular stadium. Now, I, I don't know how many of you are lawyers um, in this class, but um, uh, there is in, in the law, there is this um, uh, you know, notion about the United States is a system of dual sovereigns. And the federal, the United States Congress and federal law is often limited to things that impact interstate commerce, commerce that goes across state lines, things that are entirely within the state can only be regulated by states. And what this early Supreme Court case said was, hey, baseball games are played in one state. It doesn't involve interstate commerce, um, which kind of made no sense even then, because of course, baseball teams come from all different states. Um, but, but that's how the original uh, exemption for, for baseball came about. The idea that sports was not something that involved interstate commerce. Now, of course, by the mid 20th century, it was obvious that it did. And when these cases started coming along that we talked about earlier that dealt with, uh, with football and, um, and basketball, the, the court said, well, of course, this is big business. This is interstate commerce. It crosses state lines. It's not limited. But they always hesitated and said, but we're not gonna overrule baseball's exemption. We're, we're going to let um, Major League Baseball be exempt from the antitrust rules because that's what the Supreme Court said. And we really can't overrule that. And some cases even made their way to the Supreme Court. And there's a very interesting opinion, Jeremy's probably more familiar with this than I am, where um, Justice Blackman wrote the opinion. And basically what he said was, baseball is special. He has this long footnote that listed the names of all these Hall of Fame baseball players. And the, the idea that it was so special that it, the court was unwilling to go back on their granting of an exemption to them. Now, over the years, that has been whittled down a little bit. Um, and with respect to competing for players and the salaries that they, the, the league pays, the exemption has been taken away by Congress. But the sort of idea that, hey, there's still this exemption for Major League Baseball for certain things, like limiting teams moving from city to city, still exists. 
everybody knows it makes no sense from a legal standpoint, but it's just like one of those historical things where there's this sort of fondness for baseball, particularly by, you know, earlier generations that has made it hard for them to be treated, you know, like a business the way other sports now are. Yay for baseball. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks. Thanks, Professor. Appreciate that. Uh, By the way, I forgot to mention um, the professor and I are both big baseball fans. Uh, Professor Cimarraro uh, is a huge Mets fan, and uh, I'm a Dodger fan, but uh, Sim- Professor Cimarraro is also a member of a band called the Innocent Bystanders, so uh, so he's really cool, too. But Thanks for mentioning right. that. <laughs> of course. So, all right, so Jonathan, back to you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the NIL space, because um, it's interesting, because the Alston case dealt with giving... Um, benefits to students. And it was basically saying that these institutions, you know, all these um, schools could compete with each other and should compete with each other when it came to offering scholarships. And, but of course they had to be education related. Um, And of course, as soon as that decision was made, I sort of made the joke that, well, you know, what's going to happen is eventually a school is going to come along and they're going to say, oh, well, we bought the kid a car because we figured that was education related because he needed the car to get to school. So, you know, that's coming down the road or, or we bought him a house because, you know, but anyway, we'll see how that plays out, but that can be distinguished from NIL because NIL was really uh, driven out of, and we'll talk more about this in later class, but um, driven out of uh, state legislation, basically rights of publicity. And then ultimately these states coming along and saying, we're going to have this July 1st, 2021 date where NIL goes live. And then a bunch of states followed suit. And then we had sort of the NCAA basically saying, all right, we're going to change our rules. Um, But how does that space affect you? What does that look like for you practically? Um, I've often said that maybe it's just, you just move the clock up. So instead of waiting for somebody to declare for the draft, now you're working with them, you know, directly post high school. So what do you say to all that? Yeah. uh... It's, it's, it's a lot to unpack, just like, just like you say. It definitely changed a lot, uh, and it happened so fast. Just like you were mentioning, originally there were six states who were ready to go, you know, come July 1st, um, and a few states who had passed NIL laws but that weren't going to go into effect until 2022. So once it got to the point where the NCAA realized, you know, oh, okay, this is going to change, competition you know certain uh conferences the sec for example had a few several states alabama florida who are ready to go ahead and give these students okay the ability to make money off of their name image or likeness they didn't want that to get uh across the whole country and create all this un- new unfair competition and they just kind of threw it out okay any student athlete anywhere can make money off of their name image and likeness contingent on them complying with state laws. So it created some new problems, changed new things, but ultimately, like you're saying, uh, it just sped up the timeline. Um, For agencies, now agencies were able to get involved because most of NIL are actually marketing contracts. Uh, On an agent side, we really only kind of come into play when it comes to the actual employment contract, whenever uh, student athletes are ready to pursue professional careers, whether that's domestic here in one of the four leagues or internationally. 
Um, but what that allows us to do is marketing departments, uh, WME in particular, we're able to go out there on the marketing side, on the off-court side, go, and as long as we're compliant with each state, and every state is different. Um, for example, California allows high school students to actually make money off of their name, image, or likeness, where the rest of the states, for the most part, aren't compliant with that, and they're really keeping it to just college athletes. So each state is a little bit different on how the process works, who you need to be in compliance with. Some states require state registrations. Other states are saying, okay, as long as you um, are registered with the school, then you're able to compete. But overall, what it does is it allows us to showcase to student athletes the type of things that we'll be able to do for them once they do go professional. Um, we can show them, hey, this is your name, image, and likeness. These are the things that you can make money off of. And most of those things, they are limited still by the schools. And that is something that the NCAA has come down on. And they've made it clear that there are only certain things that a student athlete can actually make their, their money off of. Uh, you can't make money off of selling school jerseys per se, unless it's something that the school themselves are organizing. But a student athlete themselves, you know, we can use, I guess, um, I'm trying to think who, who's big right now. Um, Trevor Lawrence from last year, from Clemson. He himself couldn't sell his Clemson jersey. However, if the school, if Clemson and the sales are allowing students to participate equally amongst the team, that's something that could go through. But we're able to kind of come in and you see in situations with car deals. Um, a colleague of mine, Darren Heiner, he just did a deal for Will Richardson at Florida, where he's able, he got him a, a car that he's able to use throughout the rest of his playing career. Um, and there are also other limitations. For example, we can only represent that student athlete while they're a student athlete, and it can't lead to a promise that that student athlete is actually gonna sign with the agency post their college career. It can't be any type of inducement uh, to create a student athlete to actually sign with the agency. So it's, it's a fine line to, to play where, you know, we might be in a situation where we're making the student athlete money during their college careers. And ultimately they decide to sign elsewhere. And the NCAA allows that student athlete that right. And the leagues have kind of made it clear that we can't overstep our boundaries. Uh, the NBA Players Union, they've come out and said that it's fine for NBA agents to aid in the process. Again, we're not, it's not our, our work to procure those type of deals for student athletes, but we can advise. Uh, for example, WME Sports, we have our uh, joint venture with BDA, our basketball agency. They handle all the on-court, we handle all the off-court. We go to them for guidance as far as, well, maybe we can do uh, a card deal. Maybe we can do uh, some type of NFT deal. Maybe we can do some of these other things. Um, for example, we have Chet Hungry. We just signed him, um, projected number one pick. We consult with our BDA team. Chet hasn't made any type of promise to sign with BDA, but we can consult with them on, well, what type of deals are you doing for your NBA players? And let's see if we can use that to get a similar deal for Chet while he's still in college. So it allows that opportunity just to kind of get ahead of the game. It almost levels the playing field when it comes to big agencies versus smaller agencies uh, to the extent that it gives a smaller agency an opportunity. 
you know, if you can get in front of a kid and bring them some NIL deals while they're still playing, you know, it increases your odds of potentially signing them after their their college career, where instead most college athletes tended to go to the, the same big agencies. Now it gives you kind of an opportunity to, to create a, a, a hole for you to, to get in there, especially if you were to find a niche of a particular deal that you're uh, particularly good at. Uh, so it, it really just kind of just changed the landscape completely and it happened so quick. Um, schools and states themselves are still figuring out their, their own NIL policies. Uh, so it's constantly changing. So as an agency, we're constantly trying to keep up and, and make sure that we're in compliance. Because the last thing that we want to do is cause a student athlete to lose their eligibility, which is actually a very big deal. And it affects their opportunities moving forward. Um, depending on the sport, it also changes. Uh, for example, for us so far, our highest paid NIL deals are, are the non-traditional sports. Um, Olivia Dunn, she's over at LSU. She by far has grossed more money um, than anyone else, mainly based off of her social media following. You know, most brands, that's really what they're going off of when it comes to uh, signing those type of deals is they're thinking, okay, who has the largest following? Because those are audiences that we want to tap into. Those are things that we can sell right now. And it really doesn't matter whether or not that person is professional or not. Um, so she she's had a few seven-figure deals while she's still a college athlete. She's on uh, Louisiana State University's uh, uh, gymnastics team uh, versus some of our more traditional players it kind of changes um, a lot of things that are coming up now that college football season is kind of at the midway point um, is what happens if a player's play changes throughout the season. You know, there are several athletes who started the season pretty strong. Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma, uh, he started quarterback. He signed a few NIL deals, subsequently gets benched uh, for someone else. Brands are looking at those type of scenarios. Um, companies are looking at those type of scenarios and being a little bit more hesitant, but it also changes things to the extent that, well, now that we just released the new college football playoff rankings and we know who the top four teams are, now brands are looking at those type of players uh, from those type of schools to say, okay, well, let's go ahead and take advantage of those things. Um, traditionally, from a brand perspective, Super Bowl is one of our highest grossing days. Billions of dollars are spent for that one night brands know that that's a night that they have guaranteed audiences where hundreds of millions of people are going to be able to see their products and they want to sell. So with sports, major sports, especially around the holidays, the same opportunity has presented itself. Um, college football playoffs usually are New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. Nothing really else is going on during that time. March Madness, college basketball. It's a, a crazy time where a lot of opportunities there brands are realizing and recognizing that. Uh, so I, I still think we're just kind of at the tip uh, and it's going to get pretty crazy in a few months. Um, but that's just the, the, the area that we're in now. No, that's great, Jonathan. And as I was listening to you talk, it, it's great background and info. Um, you know, it really just reminded me of what Professor Semeraro was saying in this idea that it, this idea of sort of increasing competition. Because mm -hmm. right? that's what NIL is. It's basically exactly. saying you can now compete, um, which, which is wonderful, you know, because anytime you can 
still play, you know, college sport, get an education and make some money on the side through social media. Why not? You know, that's really what we're talking about, right? Is social media. There might be some TV appearances, maybe a television show, but um, it's mostly social media, at least from Mm -hmm. what I'm, I've sort of seen. Um, So Professor Simararo to you in closing, talking a little bit about um, where you see uh, this sort of NFL case with Stan Kroenke, the owner of uh, the LA Rams. Um, it's sort of going through the litigation process right now. Do you sort of see as that case is having um, a significant effect? Do you think this thing's going to settle? Um, maybe put on your, your crystal ball? And Well, so the, um, when the Raiders moved to LA um, initially, the, um, the NFL tried to stop them because the Rams were still there. And the, um, you know, the, the rules of the NFL at the time were, you know, hey, um, one team cannot invade another's territory, you know? And so like this in Major League Baseball, when the Nationals came about, there had to be a lot of careful negotiations with the Orioles because a lot of those fans from DC had been Orioles fans. So it was that kind of idea. And um, so uh, Al Davis at the time argued, hey, this is an antitrust violation. The other teams are trying to stop me from competing more competitively with the Rams. And uh, the, uh, the federal court said, yeah, that's, that's a real issue there. You can't block a team from moving into a new city just because it's going to create more competition for the team that's already there. You know, then ironically, of course, within a few years, the Raiders and the Rams had both left and LA had no teams. This particular um, case that you're describing sounds to me to be a little bit different because it seems like the NFL is not trying to stop this guy from moving to LA. I suspect they were in favor of getting a team in LA because they were trying to do that for the longest time. And, uh, of course, they probably didn't want two there, and now they ended up with that. Um, but with the issues in this case are, I think, are um, are not so much antitrust ones as contractual. What was the deal that the uh, you know the St. Louis Rams had with the um, you know with the city that got them support to build that stadium there in the first place? What are the provisions of that deal, and to what extent? Did they violate those provisions by not making more of an effort to make the team successful in St. Louis? And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a pretty good case there that they did breach their contractual terms because, you know, L.A. is such a huge market that you can understand, hey, I see a chance to go to that L.A. market. You know, I'm going to take that and, you know, I'll face the consequences of a breach of contract claim uh, originating from St. Louis, you know, later. So I don't, I don't know the details, but that's what I think it's centered on. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some success there um, that uh, both the NFL and the Rams uh, may, may owe some damages to, um, to St. Louis. No, that's fascinating. Um, and I appreciate you breaking that down. That's, it is interesting because I know that one of the, um, one of the issues that's come about from the case is that um, prior to this happening, the courts have been pretty um, pretty consistent on not allowing financial records of team owners to enter into a case. And uh, this one, the judge allowed it. 
Mm. And so uh, that's going to be interesting to follow. And I'm sure the news will be all over that fans will be all over it in terms of how much teams are making and what owners are investing in and that sort of thing. Um, which sort of reminds me of when a lot of the team owners were investing in DraftKings prior to the uh, sports gambling uh, case with the Supreme court. And then they, when, when the media found out about it, they ultimately, they try to divest all of their interest in DraftKings, but now they're kind of walking that back because of course the gambling is pretty much um, if you have a state law for it, you know, you're good to go. But um, thanks for breaking that down for us. I mean, I, I learned a ton Everybody, we've had uh, this terrific panel here today. We've had uh, Jonathan Putu, who is business affairs executive, uh, sports talent and brand partnerships at WME, uh, and also an NBA player agent. So thank you, Jonathan, for being here. And we had, we've had Professor Steve Cimarraro uh, at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. So thank you both for being here. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful, and I uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you soon. Thanks, Jeremy. I enjoyed it. Learned a lot. Thanks, Jeremy. All right. Well, thank you for listening in, everybody. That was a great panel we just had with Jonathan and Steve. Look forward to being back with you next week. Again, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast. The show has been brought to you by Bet Online, And thank you again for making the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Podcast Network, the number one sports law podcast in the world. Thank you. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube